I'd like to explain to you what it means to take refuge in precepts. Those of you who've been with me before know all about it, so I'll have to ask for your patience and indulgence so that you don't become impatient with the talk that you already are familiar with particularly for those of you who haven't been with me before, it is a very important thing to know about precepts and refuge. Now the first thing I'll talk about will be refuge, taking refuge. Taking refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. They're also called in the tradition the three jewels. The T Ratana. T is three and Ratana are jewels. In other words, they are the three most valuable things that we can find anywhere. Buddha is not so much the person, the historical person. It is that too, but it is primarily the Enlightenment principle. And the Enlightenment principle, which exists and exists in all of us, but which we need to touch, which we need to become acquainted with. And the practice which we're doing and hopefully will continue after the course is over should help us to get in touch with that enlightenment principle the enlightenment principle is the highest of all ideals and in order to symbolically show that it exists we use a Buddha statue naturally we can't take refuge in a statue nobody that would have any intelligence would ever think so it's a symbol a symbol for just that in order to show that this is what we're really having respect for devotion to that that what we are concerned with as the primary object of our attention the Buddha statue made out of different ingredients and metals and uh, substances is nothing but the idea that we put into some manifested form the idea of enlightenment which is not just an abstract thought but a reality for those who have been able to attain that such as the Buddha and his enlightened disciples. So this is, this is the highest for which we can have the respect, the devotion, the love, the complete wholehearted giving of ourselves. There is no possibility that that could ever disappoint us. It's not embodied in a living person who might get 
heart who might die, who might do something we don't approve of, who might not know the answers that we're looking for, no such thing, or who might not love us back. No such thing. No way of being disappointed. Here we can give ourselves wholeheartedly because it is that which is all-encompassing, enlightenment. The second thing that we can take refuge in is the Dhamma. The word Dhamma has several meanings and primarily we use it to mean the teachings of the Buddha. But that's not its sole meaning nor was that the meaning that the Buddha had invested in the word. That's only the investment we have made because the Buddha invested into this word the meaning of truth, law, law of nature, absolute reality. Now if we look at that, it contains the teaching of the Buddha. So it has all those implications. It has the implication of truth, of the law of nature, of absolute reality, all embodied in the teaching of the Buddha. And to take refuge in that means that we are actually finding a shelter. It's very difficult. In fact, it's quite impossible in this world to find complete safety. Where can we find complete safety? Even the best meditation has to end. But within those great jewels, there is safety. That's why the word refuge means a shelter for us. Something which can give us security. Because we have given ourselves to its embrace. We have given ourselves to this highest ideal so that we eventually can be that ideal. In the beginning, of course, there's no such thing possible to be that ideal. But our wholehearted devotion, love, respect and giving ourselves to it makes it possible. And as we do that and have then that feeling of being connected, really connected, our pathway is easier. And the feeling of safety within the Dhamma remains with us all the time. The Buddha said the Dhamma protects the Dhamma practitioner. It has to. As long as we practice there is that feeling of ease because when we know what we're practicing we will not grasp so there's nothing to obstruct us. So that feeling of ease is a direct outcome of the practice of the Dhamma. Having given ourselves to it, trying to find the one thing in the world that will give us safety and security, 
we can get the feeling of being embedded in a very old and truly tried tradition. One that does not claim that it has to be adhered to or else, but one that claims to bring happiness. And knowing that, even though it may not have done so, brings some buoyancy to the mind, a feeling of really being embraced by that which has truth and has safety in it. The Dhamma is not only the teaching, but it certainly embraces that. And the teaching is that which we eventually will be able to portray in such a manner that there is nothing left that doesn't portray the teaching. It is then with the person all the time. And then, of course, there's complete safety. Because at that time, there's nobody left that could possibly be in danger. The Sangha, in this case, does not mean the people who wear robes, nor even less does it mean the people who cross their legs and sit on little pillows. Because to take refuge in that would again be being concerned with the human element. And as we all know, and I'm sure nobody disagrees, the human element is totally unsafe. Because it does have its ups and downs. And it has the impermanence of the emotions, the feelings, the body. So we are not concerned with the people who wear robes, who could be anyone or anything, nor with those who are practicing, which in some areas in the world call themselves Sangha, but with those who became enlightened following the Buddha's teaching. Because as I explained to you, the Buddha is the one who finds the path for himself. All others follow the path and become enlightened following the instructions. Obviously there is a possibility, and it's not so rare, to be enlightened without the Buddha's expressed teaching. But the result is the same. The result is no self. Voidness, emptiness, whatever you like to call it. The result is the same. So when we take refuge in those who have become enlightened, again we do not take refuge in the human element. We take refuge in the fact that it is possible. Possible for human beings such as we are. And with that refuge taking, at that time also arises a kind of commitment to go along the same path and be one of those who have found the end of suffering through following the Buddha's instructions. The commitment goes hand in hand with taking refuge because only if we commit ourselves to those three jewels will there be safety for us. Will there be that shelter and embrace that we are fully embraced by 
those three highest ideas, if we don't commit ourselves to that, then we don't feel that safety. But being committed, the safety is with us all the time. We may not have had personal experience of any of the higher states. That doesn't matter. It is that being connected, attached to, having a relationship to that which makes it possible to be without all dukkha. That relationship is the most wonderful relationship that we can ever have and it will never disappoint. It doesn't have the human element in it. That what is disappointing is always the human element. He said this and she said that. But here we have the highest truth. And therefore our complete love, our complete commitment and devotion cannot have any element of being ever disappointed. We also do not expect anything from that shelter because it already is. There is nothing more to expect from it. It already exists. It exists in its purity. And some of that we have discussed here in these days so that we know at least some part of the existence of this Dhamma. Taking refuge, therefore, is a very important manifestation of our wholeheartedness, at least of our attempt to really be there and to have that kind of safety and that kind of refuge where when we really practice nothing can touch. Now that's one part of taking refuge. The other part of it is that we realize also what we're doing when we do take refuge. And as I've said before the Buddha statue is certainly only a symbol. And at this point, I would like to describe the symbolism of some of the things that you see here in front of you. The Buddha statue, obviously, I have already mentioned. For as I remember, it's sitting in meditation, the, the meditative posture. On the right and left, you will see a deer. The deer is a symbol for the very first discourse that the Buddha gave, the Dhamma Chakra Pravadana Sutta. Sutta discourse. Dhamma Chakra, the wheel of the Dhamma. Pravadana, the turning of the wheel. The very first discourse that the Buddha gave was given in the deer park of Isipatana, which is outside of Benares. And at this point in time, the Mahabodhi Society has resurrected that whole area and introduced deer again. And they are roaming there. And it's a very beautiful place. There's a lovely temple there. And you can see there the ruins of the Kuti where the Buddha stayed when he went to that uh, deer park at Isipatana. 
It's not called Isipatana now, it's called Sanat. And also there's a museum there where the very first Buddha statue can be seen that was ever made. And that was made in the year 300 BC, which means approximately 200 years after the Buddha's death. At the time of the Buddha, there were no Buddha statues, and he would not have allowed that anyway. The first Buddha statue ever made is more than life-size in a standing position. It's quite beautiful. At um, that dear park at Isipatana, the very first discourse which was given were the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path. And the way it came about was that the Buddha was at what is today called Bodhgaya, sitting under the Bodhi tree with the determination that he would sit there until he became enlightened, even should the flesh rot from the bones. And he said, and he said, and he meditated in the jhanas, and after having come out of the jhanas, he could actually voice to himself the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path as the Enlightenment Principle. I told you already that he didn't want to teach what was, so to say, persuaded by an inner voice. And in this tradition, the most important people are the spiritual teachers. So he wanted to give this um, realization that he'd had to his two teachers who had taught him the jhanas. And he looked around to find them, but they had died. So he couldn't do anything anymore. And then he looked around to find his five companions with whom he had been together at those teachers with whom he had practiced together for six years. And he saw that they had gone to the area of Benares. So he decided to go there to teach them, to teach them so that they too could become enlightened because they had been long-time practitioners and he thought that they should be able to grasp this teaching quite easily. Now these guys are called the five ascetics, or sometimes the five friends, but usually the five ascetics, because the Buddha had, before becoming enlightened, practiced ascetic practices together with those five. And it, in those days in India and today, it is very often considered to be the only way to come to spiritual enlightenment if you uh, practice a very ascetic way of life, not eating anything at all, or standing on one leg or things like that. The Buddha had tried all of that and found out that it didn't get him anywhere. So that's why his path is called the middle path. It is called that because he realized it's neither indulgence nor asceticism. It's always in the middle. Now these five friends companions had continued on the ascetic path because they hadn't had the wisdom, of course, of the Buddha. And so he wandered down to Benares. And as he came near to the deer park at Isipatana, they, these five saw him coming. And one of them said to the other, Look at that. There's Master Gautama coming. 
and he has given up the spiritual life. He's well fed and well clothed. We won't even greet him. And so he came nearer. But when he came nearer, there was such an aura about him that they couldn't help themselves but greeted them very politely. And then the Buddha said to them, Come with me, I will teach you the way to enlightenment. And they said, But how do we know that you really know that? We knew you when, you know. We were meditating together with you. And uh, how can we tell? And he said, In those six years that we were together, have I ever deceived you? And they said, No. He said, Well, in that case, just give me a try. And they said, Well, all right then. So they went with him to the deer park at Isipatana, and the story says that they all sat together under a tree in this deer park, and he recited to them the um, enlightenment experience that he'd had, the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path. And it took a whole week. And every day, one of them went out to get food to bring back for all of them, getting arms so that all of them could eat. And at the end of that recitation, where he repeats himself, uh, himself many times in order to really make it emphatic and shows the way to do it and not to do it, he's one of the five. Anya Kondanya became enlightened. And the Buddha said, Anya Kondanya sees, Anya Kondanya knows. And the other four became enlightened later. And these five were the first Buddhist monks. They said that after they'd heard the recitation of that enlightenment experience, they said that they would be the followers of the Buddha. So they were the first five Buddhist monks that ever existed and all four became enlightened very quickly now in, mem in uh, remembrance of this extremely important occasion we often find deer on a shrine and so you see deer, two deer on this shrine it's not something that is an, a must or anything like that it just so happens that somebody donated them. And that's a very nice thing because anyone who knows this part of the Buddha's life story will, when seeing the deer, immediately remember the first discourse of the Buddha and primarily the first and second noble truths. The first one saying that the whole universe is imbued with dukkha. Existence is dukkha. And the second noble truth, that there's only one cause for it, and that's craving. And immediately seeing those deer, anyone who is really committed to the Dhamma will remember, oh yes, the four noble truths. The third one, that there is a way out of all dukkha, which is called Nibbana. And the fourth one, the Noble Eightfold Path on how to get there. 
and the Noble Eightfold Path being divided into three parts, Sila Samadhi and Panya, Moral Conduct, Concentration and Wisdom. So all that can be brought up when seeing those deer. Otherwise they're just an ornament and really not that important. Anyone who's ever been to Sana, to the deer park, which used to be called Isipatana, will also most likely remember that there is a very strong feeling there of having gone back in time and being in a sort of an area or in a feeling of where the Buddha really trod. There are many places in India, particularly in North India, of course, where one can sort of go in the footsteps of the Buddha. It's all been very well documented and the feeling is quite um, one of connection the other thing that you find on a shrine are candles and the light of the candles is a symbol for enlightenment the light in the mind the mind becomes totally light there's no, there are no dark corners and everything is clear when the Buddha was asked whether he is omniscient, he said no. And when the questioner was disappointed and said, well, why not? I thought you were the Buddha. He said that he can know whatever he puts his mind on, but not everything all at once. So that is the uh, very lucid explanation of being omniscient and these candles remind us of the fact that all human minds have that potential we then have flowers preferably not made from wood which are just ornamentation but the real kind and that's a very important symbol that is the impermanence of all living things and at this moment in time maybe we are still as pretty as the flowers but tomorrow or the day after they're all going to be on the compost heap where are we going to be not, not tomorrow or the day after maybe but what are a number of years in the whole reckoning of the universe that's exactly where we're going to wind up too. And that remembrance, when we look at the flowers, is not designed to make us not like the flowers. They're very nice. There's nothing wrong with them. It's not designed to make us not like each other. They're very nice. Nothing wrong with us. But it's supposed to give us some urgency. Just as the flowers are wilting, so are we and sometimes it's very hot and the flowers wilt much quicker and so do we everything's wilting the mind can't keep the concentration together because we're just drooping just like the flowers so the flowers are really a must on any of the shrines of this tradition they are not just there to make it look nice of course they do that too 
but that's not their primary purpose. I mean, we make this hall look very nice, but that's not our primary purpose in being here, is it? Well, the same thing with these flowers. Their primary purpose is to remind us that impermanence is actually our nature. It's not just something that happens. It's our nature. And some of these flowers are wilting very quickly and have to be thrown away very quickly. And some stick around a little longer, especially when they have very strong stems. They stay longer. And the ones with the weak stems, they are wilting very quickly. It's the same with us. Some of us stick around a little longer. And some of us wilt very quickly. And then there's another thing which we haven't used here because I sometimes find that uh, some people are quite allergic to it, including myself actually, um, and that's incense. And incense is often used just on the shrine, but we will use it for taking refuge in precept. But the symbolism of incense is not just to make it smell good. But there is a particular symbolism to it, namely that the aroma of a virtuous person goes far and wide, just like the beautiful aroma of the incense. So a virtuous person is one that has an emanation of a beautiful scent, like the incense and that is the the lighting of the incense is our commitment to having that beautiful aroma ourselves and what constitutes a virtuous person is very easy in this tradition we don't have to start thinking about it the Buddha made quite sure that we had no difficulties with it he gave exact guidelines So I'll now talk to you about the next step on taking refuge in precept, namely the precepts. Now the precepts for any ordinary person that would like to live a good life, and maybe that's not so ordinary, are the five basic rules of behavior. They're worded in Buddhism in a very peculiar way, namely in the pragmatic understanding of the Buddha that we all have difficulties. So they're worded, I undertake the training to refrain from. They're not worded, thou shalt not, thou must not, thou cannot, nothing like it. I undertake the training to refrain from certain actions. And this is a training that we voluntarily undergo through a mental commitment. And by undergoing this training, we are proclaiming, first of all, self-discipline. And without self-discipline, life just falls apart. There are 
people because of sickness that cannot do that they cannot discipline anything when they're very sick their life falls apart if we do not use self-discipline for those of us who are perfectly capable of doing so we do not use our greatest potential the greatest potential is the growth prospect that spiritual growth prospect the enlightenment principle that's our greatest potential and without self-discipline without refraining from certain harmful actions that will never be possible we undertake this training in order not to harm ourselves nor to harm others and therefore we are proclaiming compassion loving kindness and harmlessness we won't harm ourselves we won't harm others all of these five are harmful to ourselves primarily but in the process of not protecting ourselves from them we also are harmful to others and you will see what that entails in a moment the basic foundation of any worthwhile spiritual path are the five precepts and you can take that for the Buddha's words it's in the Kalama Sutta if there is a spiritual path that does not honor those five precepts in their entirety then that spiritual path has something very essential lacking namely the foundation the foundation for concentration and wisdom we train ourselves we undertake the training to refrain from because we are naturally inclined by nature to break them it's more comfortable it seems to comply with our essential desires which is always appears to be comfortable and it seems easier our natural inclination is not to refrain from these things but enlightenment is a state of being supranatural so if we have any intention of getting out of dukkha the five precepts are our basic foundation for doing that without them we would not have the prerequisites for the training which is necessary the first one of those five is not to kill now obviously as you well know all religions contain that and all humanity tries to forget it now not to kill of course includes any size it doesn't just mean people and elephants it means anything that has life in it and how far we will take it is entirely up to each person 
the wording of the Buddha is just that and no more and whatever we're going to understand out of that each person will have to understand that for themselves but it goes much further than that it includes practicing the opposite and this is the very important factor of the precept we refrain from certain actions but we practice the opposite so the opposite of killing is of course loving kindness killing is done out of hate why do we kill a mosquito well not because we love it certainly so in order to practice the not killing we also have to practice the opposite namely the love and compassion for living beings the love and compassion we've already talked about we know already what it entails and the more we can have that heart quality within us the easier it is to keep the precept but also the easier it is to live with ourselves no remorse no regret nothing wrong and so much easier to live with others everyone would like to be loved so everyone is looking for a person who's got love nobody likes to be with someone who's got hate in fact it is a surefire guarantee to be lonely and alone so the precept the first precept of not killing living beings is one which is so often justified because it's an enemy because it's uh, an enemy a holy enemy holy war it's an enemy of one's ideology it's an enemy of one's health it's an enemy of one's uh, living space whatever it may be all based on the ego delusion it's a training we are undergoing it doesn't mean that we're perfect we're training ourselves the second one of the precepts is not to take anything that wasn't given which means not taking anything even the slightest thing that doesn't belong to one the opposite of that is generosity generosity is the first of the ten virtues which a person has to develop and cultivate on the way to enlightenment they are called the ten bodhisattva virtues a person in this tradition that's a bodhisattva is one that's striving for enlightenment they are the ten bodhisattva virtues and generosity is at the top of the list not because the other nine are not important but because it opens the door 
Generosity means that we momentarily forget about our self-interest and actually truly get interested in someone else. Generosity can be on the material level, giving the material things we have, such as things or money, but it can also be on the level of time, on the level of sharing skills, on the level of being a compassionate listener. It can be on the level of being available to help. All of that is generosity. Generosity of the heart, which will show itself and manifest itself in the material, in the body. What we really want to do, we manifest that through speech and action. And if we don't, it might have been a nice thought. And that's all. Generosity has to manifest. It is the moment of letting go of egocentricity. It is a moment of um, actually experiencing how lovely it is when the me is not in the middle of it all. It only takes one moment, of course, and then the me is back. But the more we practice generosity, the more often we have that instance of me being away. And therefore, the more we become imbued with the understanding that me is really a nuisance. Generosity is mentioned by the Buddha many times. He has many aspects of it. Generosity of a beggar is when one gives away what one doesn't need or want anyway. Generosity of a friend, when we share. Generosity of a king, when we give away more than we keep. The latter is so rare that a person that's doing that would most likely become very famous. Not to take, but instead to give. It's the same principle as not trying to hang on, but to let go. It's always one and the same. Letting go. Anything that we store, whether it's thoughts, or whether it's things, or whether it's attachments, whatever it is that we store can only be a burden. It has to be looked after. Because it breaks down, needs to be renewed, repaired, and so on. The third precept is we undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. Sexual misconduct is primarily not hurting another person physically or emotionally. If we can't see that difference, then we are justifying our greed. Now you can see that the very first one goes against hate and the next two against greed. 
not taking what's not given goes against greed not having sexual misconduct goes against greed the opposite that we can practice and need to practice faithfulness reliability trustworthiness we practice that as part of our character evolvement if we can be faithful in the in the face of odds if we can be totally reliable when it isn't very convenient when we keep our word no matter what because we have promised when there is the togetherness with another person and things become difficult but we remain steadfast we're growing within that kind of steadfastness faithfulness reliability also concerns our friends it's not only our sexual relationships but the greatest havoc is usually wrought through the sexual relationships which go haywire because of some lack of that personal integrity which actually is the hallmark of a good character and personal integrity is what we need to practice if we want to practice the dhamma the dhamma goes right straight through all the kind of sham and illusion and hiding behind thoughts and uh, words which are true so personal integrity cannot be substituted and that's part of that third precept how very difficult life becomes when that third precept is not being kept again one could say at this point it's very completely useless to get angry at a person who's not keeping that precept because they themselves get the results of the action all of us are the owners of our own karma there's no need to get angry at anyone for doing the wrong thing for behaving in a in the wrong manner for saying the wrong things everyone gets the results of their own karma if we get angry at that person then we're only hurting ourselves anger doesn't feel good anger is like a fire that is consuming us we don't need to light such a fire And the fourth precept is one which is the easiest broken we undertake the training to refrain from wrong speech that includes of course lying it includes backbiting gossiping and idle chatter and the last one is the one that's of course the easiest to break it's the cheapest entertainment we can get 
Arnold Chatter. And although we can all afford other kinds of entertainment, that is still the most popular. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily that we constantly have to talk about the Dhamma. That would be also very difficult to sustain. But the talk that we have should have some meaning. It shouldn't just be idly talking for talking's sake. If that was all we can think of, it's better to keep quiet. If we ask somebody, how are you? How are you feeling? And we really mean it. We want to show that person that we have regard for their health. That's good speech. But if we just say, how are you? And we couldn't care less how they are. That's Arachata. It's very simply simple to differentiate. If we have something important to say, we must say it. But the Buddha has given a formula for that, which is also a very important one to keep in mind. Because all of us have things to say at one time or another, and all of us at one time or another feel that something just has to be said. So we can keep this formula in mind. It goes like this. If we know something that could be hurtful and is untrue, not to say it. If we know something that could be hurtful and is true, not to say it. If we know something that could be helpful and is untrue, not to say it. And if we know something that could be helpful and is true, to find the right time. Which prevents impulsive speaking. It prevents an immediate reaction. We've got to find the right time. And the right time is then when we do not have any anger for the person. When we can talk to that person in a way which might be acceptable to them. In a way which they can feel that we mean well. Now if we blurt out things in a voice which is dismissing the other person, a feeling of superiority or arrogance, if there is any kind of feeling of denigrating, no one will listen. No one will believe a thing. On the contrary, we've made an enemy. It's very easy to make an enemy. It's easier than making a friend. And it's so much more important to make a friend and even more important to make noble friends. So if we can have enough mindfulness, and obviously we're not always going to make it, but at least we can know about it, if we have enough mindfulness to wait and see how we feel about that person before we say something, we've probably got got one notch ahead in being persuasive. 
and convincing. If we don't wait, we probably won't be convincing. The opposite of wrong speech of course, right speech. And right speech does not being mean being an orator. It's got nothing to do with that. Right speech is just that it is truthful, helpful, and elevating. It is said about a noble friend by the Buddha that such a noble friend talks about things which are new to one, which one hasn't heard before, and are therefore, on a spiritual level, um, illuminating. A noble friend can explain the things that one has heard so that one can use them, make use of them. A noble friend can show one how to actually use one's speech so that it becomes part of the practice. So noble friend and noble conversations are all part and parcel of this fourth precept. The fourth precept, the idle chatter and the gossiping and all that, is the one that is broken by practically everyone who hasn't had at least stream entry. When stream entry has taken place, that precept too should be much more in line with the guidelines of the Buddha. It's a difficult one because we do so much of it. We do so much speaking, except in a course like this, we don't do quite as much, hopefully. <laughs> so, uh, in our daily lives, we have innumerable opportunities to break that precept. And yet, if we watch that, we have a much easier passage. The Buddha said, the fool carries an axe in his mouth instead of a tongue. So, someone who carries an axe in his or her mouth is a person who axes other people with words. And the Buddha called that a fool. And basically, one always hurts oneself. One always comes back to hurting oneself. Because we cannot get out of the results of our karma. We just can't. We have all the karma which then comes always back to us and not to the other person. And the last one is to refrain from intoxicating drinks and drugs. In the original version it says fermented substances. So, intoxicating drinks and drugs. And the question whether a little is meant by that everyone will have to answer themselves. The Buddha's words are clear-cut. Intoxicating substances. The intoxicating substances work against mindfulness. 
and to lose one's mindfulness is usually the beginning of losing the rest of the precepts. The more mindfulness one loses, the more the precepts get broken. If one loses one's mindfulness completely, one can then kill when driving. And it's well known. We don't have to elaborate on that. If one loses one's mindfulness a little, the speech will no longer be in line with what the guidelines are. Third precept can easily be broken so that the basis for breaking the other precepts can very easily be breaking of the fifth one. Because when the mind is no longer clear and concise, how does it know what it's doing? Now, whatever constitutes enough to do that, everybody's going to have to work that out themselves. The safest is none whatsoever. If we would like safety, that's where safety lies. Everybody is very concerned with safety, but when it comes to that, safety is no longer a consideration. All I can tell you is the jhanas are so much better. All you have to do is practice, and nobody will ever need any of that, believe to need any of that again. Nobody needs it. It's a foolish and foolhardy undertaking to try to justify that. And we know, all of us know, the results that can come. They don't have to, but they can. The Buddha's guidelines and his words that we have on all these subjects have reasons. They are not arbitrary um, things that were said in order to make life difficult for us. On the contrary, these are instructions to make life easy for us. To make life so that it flows and doesn't always get stuck somewhere. Stuck with something that we have said, that we should never have said. Stuck with something that we have drunk, which we should never have drunk. Or have taken a drug and should never have taken it because the whole ambience of the life gets mixed up. Or, having had a sexual relationship, we should never have had. Wherever we look, when we break any of these precepts, we get stuck in a situation. It's very difficult to explicate it again. Some of them, we explicate ourselves quickly. By maybe going to this person and saying, I'm very sorry about what I said this morning. I wasn't myself. Well, nobody knows who one was, but at least one wasn't oneself. If the person accepts it, maybe the thing is all right. But what about all these other things? Some of them take years to get out of again. Why get in in the first place? The foolishness of doing that is, is clear to anyone who's ever got stuck. Those people who haven't got stuck yet, really stuck, or haven't noticed it that they're completely stuck, they're probably still trying to do it. 
the guidelines are strictly for our benefit. They are proclaimed by the Buddha as the basis for an easy life, for a life which brings contentment in the heart because one has no remorse and one doesn't hurt anybody else. As long as we protect ourselves, we protect everyone else. There's a story of a monk in the Buddha's time who'd been a monk for 25 years, been trying to meditate for 25 years and never got concentrated, never made it. And he got so disgusted with himself that he was ready to commit suicide. So he got himself a rope, climbed up on a tree, tied the rope to a, to a branch, tied the end, other end of the rope around his neck, was just about to jump off when he remembered he hadn't broken any of the precepts in 25 years. And it gave him so much happiness remembering that that he took the rope off quickly, got down on the ground again and continued to practice. The story says that in the end he also got enlightened. The feeling of contentment about being able to overcome one's grosser instincts alone already helps one to meditate better. The grosser instincts are those that make us do those things. They are the ones connected with hate and greed. That's all it is. There's nothing else in there except hate and greed. And of course the underlying delusion of this is me and I need and I want. So the hate and greed comes out. But the ability to overcome that by letting it subside, even if the desire is there, is such a source of feeling at ease with oneself that it has a great impact on the meditation. To think otherwise is completely deluded. One could, of course, make argumentation on all levels. To commit oneself to this kind of undertaking does not mean that one commits oneself to being perfect. There are a number of perfectionists in this course, so please, all the perfectionists, one does not commit oneself to be perfect. One commits oneself to undertake the training, to refrain from. It's a training. And that's all. Now, the thing is that when one commits oneself to this training, Obviously, one's going to break one of, one of these things once in a while, particularly the one about speech. And the thing to do at that time is to sit down, if possible, in front of a Buddha statue, and if not, just sit down by oneself and retake that precept, like making another New Year's resolution. Now, in the Buddhist countries, of this tradition, which is Burma, Sri Lanka, and Thailand, it is customary to take these precepts 
at every occasion. For instance, when bringing food to monks and nuns, when visiting a temple, when seeing a shrine, any time at all, just to remind oneself that that's what I'm on about. I'm trying to keep those precepts. So one can repeat them any time to oneself. However, to take them to here together is like a proclamation of intent. And in front of one's peers, it is of much greater impact on the mind. I think that it has a similarity to an official wedding ceremony where one proclaims to all and sundry that one is going to try and live together for this lifetime, if possible, or just moving in with another person. If one just takes those precepts to oneself and says, yeah, that's a good idea. Okay, I won't kill, I won't steal, I won't have any sexual misconduct, I won't have any wrong speech and I won't take any alcohol and drugs. It's too easily forgotten. Not that we're going to be perfect when we take it uh, officially, but it does have a feeling of having done something, a commitment. That's why it is customary to do it this way. Now, before we actually do it, and I'll explain to you how, maybe you have some questions, and this is the time to ask. Hallelujah. No. <laughs> okay. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, but the question is wrong. There is no such thing. It's either this or that. It's either it must be one of the four. Which teacher would you like to know about? Who who knows? There are hundreds of teachers. Who knows? Hundreds of teachers, I don't know, maybe thousands, I don't know. Yeah, well...
Hmm. Well, maybe Achan Shah didn't think it was a good idea. I don't know, I've never met Achan Shah, and now we'll never do so because he died. So I have no idea. I wouldn't know. When I tell you the truth, I've been so busy practicing and teaching, I really don't know what other teachers are doing. Well, one would hope so. One would hope so. That's all I can say, one would hope so. It, it has to be a... Um, Now, I wouldn't worry about that if I were you. There are that few people that would have that, that they probably wouldn't come around to, to, uh, to Australia. <laughs> Highly unlikely. Something similar on that level. <laughs> I wouldn't take that for for a fact. It's just an assumption. <laughs> you see, one would assume that a person who has had stream entry according to the Buddhist path would be attracted to a Buddhist country. That would be an assumption. There's no way of being sure. But I wouldn't worry about such things. Are you really thinking about such things? Wouldn't you rather think about how to get concentrated? The onus of the recognition lies on the meditator, I said. Lies on the meditator, him, him or herself. teacher can confirm or can not confirm, but the onus of recognition lies on the meditator him or herself. Well, in, it's not such a useful um, um, thing to consider because it doesn't really bring about more concentration, does it? No. <laughs> Anything else? Yes. Namo tasa bhagavato rahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddhang Saranangachami I take refuge in the Buddha. Dhammang Saranangachami I take refuge in the Dhamma. 
I take refuge in the Sangha. Do te ampi bodhang saranangachami. For the second time, I take refuge in the Buddha. Do te ampi dhammang saranangachami. For the second time, I take refuge in the Dhamma. Do te ampi sanghang saranangachami. For the second time, I take refuge in the Sangha. Ha te ampi budhang saranangachami. For the third time, I take refuge in the Buddha. For the third time, I take refuge in the Dhamma. For the third time, I take refuge in the Sangha. Anati patta vevamanisika padam samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. Adina dana vevamanisika. Padam Samadhyami I undertake the training to refrain from taking what is not given. Kame Sumichacharavevamani Sika Padam Samadhyami I undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. I undertake the training to refrain from lying and harsh words. Sura Miriam Majapamadatana Veramani Sika Padam Samadhyami I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicating drinks and drugs. Isaranena sadhim pancha silang dhammang sadukang 
Tu Rakitang Katva Pamadena Sampadeta. That means, may the taking of the three refuges and the five precepts be for your benefit and happiness. May you all be very happy. And please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Now fill your heart with love and gratitude to the three jewels, the triple gem, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, for the teaching and the protection. And then extend some love and gratitude to the precepts for their teaching and their protection. Embrace them with love and gratitude. Now fill yourself with love and gratitude that you have the refuges and the precepts. Extend that love and gratitude to yourself. Send your love and gratitude to the person sitting nearest you for being on the same path with you, for containing also refuge and precept. 
fill him or her with love and gratitude. Fill everyone here with your love and gratitude for being on the same path with you, for having taken refuge and precept. Think of any people that you know who try to live by these precepts, whether they succeed or not. Extend your love and gratitude to them. They are also helping you. Fill them with your love and gratitude. Think of all the Buddhists in Australia who have taken the same refuge and precept. Feel your connection, extend your love and gratitude to them. They're helping you on this path. They have the same connection. Think of all the people in Australia who are trying to live by these precepts, whether they know it or not, whether they have taken them formally or not, and extend your love and gratitude to them. They too are upholding the goodness in the universe. Fill them with your love and gratitude. and these precepts and try to live by them. Fill them with your love and gratitude. 
for upholding the same goodness that you yourself are upholding. Think of all the many millions of people who are trying to live by these precepts all over the world. Sometimes against many odds, extend your loving gratitude to them for being part of the goodness that exists for having this connection with them. to be found as soon as we direct our mind towards it. Love it. Be grateful to it. Feel protected by it. See, feel its all-pervading strength. Feel connected to all the many people who feel that all-pervading strength of goodness and purity and truth, no matter what name is given to it. Feel that connection, that unity. Feel safe and protected within it. in your heart so that they may become one with it. May our beings become enlightened. 